Chapter 5 of Pollyanna's Jewels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Melinda Fogel. Pollyanna's Jewels by Harriet Lummis Smith. Chapter 5 Pollyanna Takes a Rest. This particular fall, Mr. and Mrs. John Pendleton stayed unusually late at their summer home in Vermont. But they were hardly back in the city before they came out to spend the weekend with Jimmy and Pollyanna. They were delighted to have the young people so near, and, on that account, were in a mood to be pleased with everything. They liked the house and approved the neighborhood. They expressed amazement at the way the children had developed since they saw them last. Even Jiggs called forth the most extravagant admiration. The only thing in the whole establishment of which Uncle John and Aunt Ruth seemed critical was Pollyanna herself. They both insisted that Pollyanna was tired out, that she was pale and thin and that she needed a complete rest. Pollyanna explained that moving had been an ordeal, but now that it was over and everything running smoothly, she was getting more rested every day. Her protestations were received with manifest incredulity. I understand, Pollyanna, said Aunt Ruth. You're at your old tricks, but even the glad game may be carried too far. Aunt Ruth, cried Pollyanna from a full heart. There's not a bit of credit nowadays in my playing the game. Everything is so wonderful that I couldn't help but being glad if I tried. Aunt Ruth looked at her fondly, yet with that unmistakable air of superiority, which most people are likely to assume toward one who professes superlative satisfaction with life and the world in general. It doesn't matter a bit what you say, Pollyanna, because I can see for myself that you're tired out. You need a rest, and you must have a rest at once. If Aunt Ruth had confined her remarks to Pollyanna, the thing would have gone no farther than a battle of opinions. But, to Pollyanna's dismay, she trained her guns on Jimmy. Whenever the two were alone, she dropped her voice to that undertone which generally means that people are going to say something unpleasant, and reiterated that she was worried about Pollyanna. Couldn't he see for himself that the dear child looked worn? He must not be misled by her tendency to make the best of things. And Jimmy promptly succumbed to the contagion of his aunt's anxiety and was ready to exercise marital authority if necessary. Much to Pollyanna's amazement, they arranged everything without so much as consulting her. Aunt Ruth suggested that one of the maids who had worked for her, that memorable winter Pollyanna spent in Boston, and who frequently came to her in an emergency, would be only too glad to assist Nancy for a week in Pollyanna's absence. And it would have been a painful surprise to these two people, who loved Pollyanna so dearly, 
to know that their calm assumption that she could so easily be spared, and their authoritative settling of the question which concerned her so intimately, had a decidedly depressing effect on her spirits. For the first time in months, she found it necessary to concentrate all her resolution on playing the game. I ought to be glad that Jimmy thinks more of what is best for me than of what he wants himself. Of course he'll miss me terribly, even if Aunt Ruth's Mary is such a paragon. And it's dear of Aunt Ruth to want me. I wonder if there ever was anybody who had such adorable friends. And having reached this climax, Pollyanna winked away a tear, which perhaps went to show that Aunt Ruth's contention was not altogether mistaken. The Pendletons went back to Boston Monday, and the following Saturday the Paragon appeared, that the children might have a chance to get accustomed to her before her mother's departure. To Pollyanna's relief, they all accepted her with a matter-of-factness that promised well for the coming week. Jiggs, unfortunately, took one of his unreasoning prejudices against Mary and barked at her whenever she came near him. And, even while Pollyanna scolded him, she was conscious of an unworthy satisfaction and the reflection that there was one member of the household who would not be satisfied with Mary as a substitute. On Monday morning, Pollyanna went to town with Jimmy. Junior and Judy flattened their noses against the pane as they watched her departure, and Nancy held the baby aloft and waggled her chubby arm in farewell. Pollyanna waved her hand, all smiles, then looked resolutely ahead and walked at her husband's side in silence. Not crying, are you? Jimmy expostulated. My dearest girl, do be reasonable. Oh yes, I know, Jimmy, Pollyanna quavered, the tears splashing over her cheeks, even as she smiled radiantly. Of course I'm silly, but I'm glad it hurts to leave them even for a week. Think how heavenly it will seem to be back home again. The car and Uncle John awaited her at the station in Boston, and she was whirled away after a goodbye to Jimmy, which to the cynical might have seemed sufficient preparation for a year's absence. But, after blowing her nose repeatedly, and making somewhat irrelevant replies to Uncle John's kind inquiries as to the children's health, Pollyanna characteristically began to enjoy her surroundings. The luxurious car with the big yellow chrysanthemum in the flower holder was a delight. The sights of the city, which had been her home for eight months, thrilled her pleasantly. And when, at length, the car halted before the very house where the former Mrs. Carew had so reluctantly received her. Pollyanna flew up the steps with almost the exuberance of her old-time childish self. On this occasion, Aunt Ruth welcomed her tenderly. I'm so glad to have you here, you dear child. A week of rest will do you a world of good. In fact, you look better already. Pollyanna evaded the unwelcome topic. How beautiful your home is. 
It's so long since I was here that I'll have to get used to it all over again. Aunt Ruth answered with an abstracted smile which told that her thoughts were busy. Couldn't you eat something, Pollyanna? You made such an early start. No, indeed. I couldn't possibly eat anything before luncheon. Then you better take things quietly till half past ten. Then Mark is going to drive us down to my club. We have a lecture on current events every Monday morning. You'd enjoy that, wouldn't you, dear? Oh, awfully, Aunt Ruth. Pollyanna spoke with real enthusiasm. She was well aware that she was quite out of touch with world affairs in her absorption in a different sort of current events. The baby's last tooth, a rash on Judy's chest, Jig's latest iniquity. I shall just love to hear the lecture, she declared. From the club, we'll go to one of the hotels for luncheon. I'm a member of the organization that aids worthy mothers left with families to support. Once a month, we have a luncheon and hear the reports of our workers while we are eating. It saves time, you see. Yes, I see, nodded Pollyanna. She could not help thinking that if the workers brought in harrowing reports regarding poverty-stricken families, it might take the edge off one's appetite. It'll be very interesting, she said quickly, as if apologizing for her unspoken thought. It only takes an hour. We'll have a nice time to rest before Mrs. Ingram's tea this afternoon. A Canadian poetess is going to read us some of her poems, and there will be a very cultured, delightful group of women present. You always meet such worthwhile people at Mrs. Ingram's. Pollyanna who was wondering a little uneasily if the wardrobe she had brought would meet the requirements of Mrs. Ingram's tea, heaved a sigh of relief. It was unlikely that worthwhile women, who were interested in poetry, would be too critical of one's clothes. The program of the day was carried out as Aunt Ruth had outlined it. Pollyanna enjoyed the lecture on current events, which dealt very largely with affairs in Europe. It was a relief to turn her thoughts from jigs to the Balkan states. She found the luncheon interesting, though, in her absorption with the reports given by the various workers, she might as well have eaten chipped beef as chicken cutlet. They did not get away very early, for several ladies wished to consult Aunt Ruth regarding the work of the organization, and Pollyanna listened absorbedly to their discussion. It was half past two when they reached home, and the maid, who helped them off with their wraps, informed them that Mr. Pendleton had telephoned that he had secured tickets for the play. Aunt Ruth beamed. I didn't speak of it because I was afraid of disappointing you, dear. We couldn't get tickets Saturday, but the man we deal with was hopeful of securing them from somebody. This play... Ebb Tide is one of the best attractions of the season. Lovely, Aunt Ruth. I feel as if I were living in a delirious world. We'll have to leave about half past three, said Aunt Ruth, consulting her clock. The poetess will read soon after four, 
and tea will be served when she finishes. I'm afraid you won't have time to lie down, Pollyanna. Of course not, Pollyanna agreed. And what's more, I don't need to. I'm not a bit tired. As a matter of fact, she had barely time to telephone Jimmy after she had dressed for the tea. Just wanted to give you my love and tell you that I'm flying from one gaiety to another till I remind myself of Sin chasing his tail. Good work, approved Jimmy. Keep it up. Call me first thing in the morning, Jimmy. I shall want to know how the baby got along. It's the first night she ever... Oh, she'll be all right, interposed Jimmy hastily. Now, have a good time and don't worry. Aunt Ruth called from the hall below, and there was no time for more. Pollyanna went off to Mrs. Ingram's where she enjoyed the Canadian poetess and met so many of Aunt Ruth's worthwhile friends that their names and faces all ran into one another like a crossword puzzle. She sat down to dinner, the edge of her appetite dulled by Mrs. Ingram's tea and cakes, and they were hardly up from the table before it was necessary to hurry into her only evening frock and start for the theater. She enjoyed the play, though, toward the end, she grew so sleepy that she had to blink hard to keep her eyes open. They stopped at one of the hotels for a quite unnecessary late supper. And when Pollyanna laid her head upon her pillow shortly after one o'clock, she was too tired even to wonder if the baby were missing or needing her. Pollyanna had innocently assumed that this was an exceptional day but she soon realized that it was typical of Aunt Ruth's round. The second day was like it, except that instead of a lecture on current events, they heard an entertaining talk on the latest books. They had luncheon with one of Aunt Ruth's friends, the luncheon followed by a lecture recital on Scandinavian folk songs by an attractive young woman in native costume. Late in the afternoon, they stopped at the art club, where a reception was in progress for a visiting celebrity, and reached home just in time to dress for dinner, a more formal occasion than usual, as there were several guests. That night, when Pollyanna retired, she found herself too weary to go to sleep for some time. She realized with amazement the endurance of women of Aunt Ruth's type. They were interested in all cultural movements, all philanthropic enterprises. Pollyanna seemed to herself a person of leisure compared with these women who lived with one eye on the clock and went remorselessly from one activity to another through the long day. She wondered what sort of brains they had, that they could keep all the information they collected in a day properly labeled and pigeonholed. She suspected that already she was getting things muddled. But worse was coming. At breakfast, the morning of the third day, Aunt Ruth said casually, By the way, Pollyanna, how's your bridge? Pollyanna stared. Aren't you thinking of Jimmy, Aunt Ruth? Auction bridge, dear child. What sort of game do you play? 
Pollyanna laughed lightheartedly. Probably the lowest form known to science. If she had imagined that this was a fit theme for jesting, she was immediately undeceived. Both Aunt Ruth and Uncle John looked as serious as if she had acknowledged herself unable to read and write. We'll have to find time to drill you a little today, said Aunt Ruth. Tomorrow, you're invited to two card parties. Two card parties, repeated Pollyanna, and a quick ear would have detected consternation in her tone. We're asked to a luncheon and bridge at Mrs. Cunningham's tomorrow, and in the evening our bridge club meets. One of the members happens to be away, so you can take her place. Pollyanna realized she was expected to be pleased and flattered by the opportunity. She said faintly, But Aunt Ruth, wouldn't it be better to invite somebody who knows more about it? Aunt Ruth did not seem to think so. You can never learn younger, she remarked reasonably. You're bright enough so that if you keep your mind on the game, with the help we'll give you, you ought to do very well. It was not easy to decide on a time that could be devoted to advancing this branch of Pollyanna's education. It was at once evident that something must be given up. After a protracted discussion, it was decided to forego the pleasure of the private view of an art exhibition they had planned to attend that evening. Pollyanna was secretly pleased at the decision. The idea of a quiet evening at home appealed to her strongly. She telephoned Jimmy shortly before train time that she was going to have an evening off. Pollyanna's idea of a game of cards was painfully old-fashioned. She thought of it as sheer recreation, something that passed the time pleasantly, without the fatigue incident to work. That evening, when Aunt Ruth and Uncle John attempted to improve her game of bridge, was enlightening in more ways than one. Pollyanna attempted to enliven the evening by sprightly monologues between hands. She had told several of the children's funny sayings, when Aunt Ruth checked her gently. If I were you, dear, I'd try to keep my mind on the game. If you distract your thoughts, you can't possibly do yourself justice. The sobered Pollyanna gave her attention to her hand and began to realize that the evening was very different from what she had anticipated. They were playing, not for fun, it appeared, but with deadly seriousness. Pollyanna led her cards with an awesome sense of the importance of each play. But, even after reaching this realization, she did not give satisfaction. Oh, Pollyanna, Aunt Ruth remonstrated in a pained voice, that's not the right lead. You see, Uncle John has the queen. Oh, has he, Aunt Ruth? but I didn't know that. You might have known it, dearie, if you had watched the way the cards fell. And Aunt Ruth proceeded to explain why Pollyanna should have realized that the Queen of Hearts was in John Pendleton's hand. And Pollyanna listened with a growing realization of her intellectual limitations. 
The effect upon her mind was exactly as if Aunt Ruth had been repeating words, which were perfectly understandable taken singly, but meant nothing taken in combination. When she went to bed, she was aware that she did not look forward to the card parties next day with cheerful anticipation. The afternoon card party was a big affair. Pollyanna was immediately separated from Aunt Ruth and placed at a table with three strangers, all young women like herself. She was pleasantly impressed with all three and would have enjoyed herself had she not been fearful of forfeiting their respect by her amateurish playing. But with a freakishness which has made beginners look proverbial, fate gave her cards which could not be beaten. Pollyanna and her partner left the table winners and with an imposing score. But now, Pollyanna's luck deserted her. The two women who awaited them at the next table probably could not have been matched in the entire assembly for cheap vulgarity. With both of them, cards were not merely a diversion, not merely a profound interest in life, but a passion. They played early and late and seven days a week. They went to the seashore in the spring and the mountains in the summer, not to see the sea nor the mountains, but to play cards with new partners. They had no time for reading, and the southern mountain women in their lonely shacks knew as much as they of what was going on in the world. Art, philosophy, and religion together meant less to them than winning a rubber. Though one was unpleasantly fat, with a whole tear of double chins running down into her ample bosom, and the other was thin to the point of emaciation, there was a queer resemblance between them. In the interval before the signal to play, Pollyanna was astonished to find that the two ladies were discussing the value of the prizes generally given by the hostess of the afternoon, with the implication that they were too inexpensive to be a credit to the giver. A hostess at whose home they had played the previous day had set a more admirable example in this respect, but the afternoon had been far from satisfactory for they openly accused the winner of the prize of cheating. Pollyanna, listening, blushed to her ears in vicarious humiliation. It was the emaciated woman who became her partner, and she had a way of taking deep breaths each time Pollyanna led, which would have been disconcerting to a player of wide experience. At the end of the first hand, she burst out explosively. Would you mind telling me? I'm just curious, you understand, why you signaled clubs when you couldn't take a trick. Pollyanna stared at her aghast. Did I signal? I didn't mean to. Then why did you play your seven spot before the six? Pollyanna did not even remember that she had done so. But in case the emaciated woman was right, the reason seemed simple enough. I suppose, she hesitated, I thought it wouldn't make any difference which was played first. 
Her partner said nothing, but her sigh spoke for her. It said plainly, Heaven grant me patience. And again, Pollyanna blushed, less for her own bad playing than for her partner's bad manners. It was clearly time for the glad game. Anyway, said Pollyanna to herself, I can be glad I don't have to do this often. The thought helped her through another hand. A little bell tinkled, and Pollyanna and her partner were found to be the losers. The others moved away, and the emaciated lady greeted her new partner with joy. In this round, too, Pollyanna was defeated. But it was even better than victory to see the emaciated lady moving off to the next table. Pollyanna hoped with all her heart that she might not see her again, and her wish was granted. Nor did she again encounter a player who even remotely suggested the mercenary vulgarity of that appalling pair who had made a game of cards an incredible ordeal. But the afternoon was almost over before she succeeded in freeing herself from the spell of discomfort they had put upon her. The evening was distinctly pleasanter than the afternoon. The company was smaller and more select, and all present were very anxious to be kind to the young woman who called Mrs. Pendleton Aunt Ruth. But at the same time, in the hush that descended when the cards were dealt, there was a suggestion of serious purpose which was far from Pollyanna's idea of a pleasant social evening. She did her level best that she might not make these kind people uncomfortable and shame Aunt Ruth before them all, but she was too tired to make the most, even of her scant knowledge, and she suspected that some of her partners, as well as she herself, were thankful when it came time to go out to the dining room. How great the strain had been, she did not know until she was in bed and had closed her eyes with the fond expectation of going to sleep immediately. And at once, there flashed before her the Ten of Hearts, as distinct as if she had just played it. And then she saw that every red heart was a little impish face, they grinned at her, they rolled their eyes, some even stuck out their tongues, and when she turned over, hoping for escape, the ten of hearts became the deuce of spades, and funny little black faces winked and blinked at her. It was almost morning before her weariness got the better of her nerves, and she dropped off to sleep. Pollyanna did not play cards again during her stay, though once or twice Aunt Ruth suggested it. Instead, they filled in the time with lectures, and the symphony concert, and shopping, and luncheons with Uncle John at his club, and attending a pageant given for the benefit of the Near East Relief. On Sunday, Jimmy came for dinner and, along in the afternoon, took Pollyanna home with him. The homecoming was all she had hoped. The older children shrieked ecstatically at the sight of her and clung to her as if they were determined she should not again escape them. The baby cooed and gurgled. Jiggs barked himself hoarse. And then, snatching up the glove Pollyanna had dropped when she took the baby on her lap, retired under the Davenport to chew it into a hopeless pulp. 
Sin rubbed against her dress and purred, and Goldilocks's song of welcome rose loudly above the clatter. I really believe you look better, Jimmy said, eyeing her critically. You did have a good rest, didn't you? Pollyanna's hesitation dissolved into laughter. Let me tell you something, Jimmy. The overworked mother, who gets so much sympathy, doesn't work as hard as women like Aunt Ruth, who belong to a dozen clubs and societies and read everything worth reading and see everything worth seeing as a matter of course. But they say, a change of work is rest, don't they? And if that's the case, I've had a restful week. End of chapter 5